Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. This is actually take two of this introduction. <laughs> I, I introduced myself as chief economist of economy.com. Well, you know, I have economy.com on my mind. You know why? Because we're coming up to the uh, anniversary of our uh, of the sale of economy.com, the company I started with my brother and a, and a good friend. Uh, it'll be 16 years ago now since we uh, sold a company to Moody's. And uh, I, I've now been part of Moody's longer than I was uh, part of economy.com, 16 years. So uh, I guess I'm allowed that mistake, uh, but uh, we had to restart. Uh, but I'm joined by my uh, colleagues at Moody's Analytics, uh, my good friends and uh, co-hosts here, uh, Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics, and Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist. Hey, guys. Um, you know, uh, I, I see Chris is in the office. How yeah. does that feel, Chris? Uh, it, feels, it feels good. It was a little yeah. weird, I have to say, uh, coming back. It was, you know, it, little, it was like uh, coming back to the spaceship that had been abandoned, right? So you had <laughs> right. calendar still on March, had to fix the espresso machine, but uh, it's good. It's good to be back. So. That's good. Is anyone else back? Are you? Are you there are yourself? a few of us trickling in here, so... Uh, yeah, right. Damien's back. Damien, oh, Damien's back. Oh, Damien Moore. Oh, that that's good. Um, Ryan, are you going back anytime soon, or you you're happy at home? I'm happy at home. You are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am and my too. office is right next to Damien's, so <laughs> my productivity would tank if I go back to the office. <laughs> he's such a chatterbox, that Damien. He is. You no. Know? <laughs> a, a listener, he's just the opposite of a chatterbox. Uh, He's an Australian. You would think these Aussies would be more gre gregarious, you know, out there, you know, but Damien's very uh, quiet, thoughtful fellow. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, it's a very nice day here in uh, suburban Philly. And uh, we're going to keep this podcast short because, you know, this might be the last nice day for a long time, but uh, we're, we're, uh, we're very happy to have a guest today. Uh, Joe, Joe Kennedy. Hi, Joe. Hi, how are you doing? I am well, and uh, Joe, you're in D.C., correct? I am. I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm de just delighted to be here to help you relaunch your career. Oh, thank you so. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was pretty funny. I hope this Moody's thing works for you. Yeah, me too. Especially after screwing up the name. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what was I going to ask? Uh, can't remember. There's there's a question I was going to. Oh, uh, are you back in the office? Are you have you gone back? I, occasionally, I've been going back. Uh, I try and go back once a week. They give us free food, so that's uh, that helps. <laughs> helps. I can take out four candy bars. Yeah, and Joe, so. you are at. Uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. Yeah, uh, all the way back. I think the first time I met you. You were chief economist of the Commerce Department under yeah. George Bush, I believe. Yeah. 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 Last two years. So during the uh, Great Recession, the Great Almost Depression. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. And I remember, I think I gave a bit of a talk or we had a bit of a conversation yeah. at the Commerce Department. Yeah. That was. Yeah. Uh, I, re I reached out to one of the nice things about that job was people returning calls, even. Mark Sandy. <laughs> exactly. So I reached out because I was trying to get different views of what, what was happening and what was going to happen. And then you were kind enough to come in and talk to the staff about just what you thought was going on. Right. And I think it was kind of early in 
early in the process when when the economy was just people didn't realize how bad, how it, bad was it was. Yeah, yeah, was I sufficiently bleak? Do you remember? Probably. I forget. Yeah, <laughs> I was pretty bleak, but I'm I, I'm sure I wasn't sufficiently yeah. bleak yeah. given what happened. And then uh, you went on to work uh, at a think tank. Uh, yeah, right. Charitable trusts. Oh, you were a pew. That's yeah, we went first. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then I did that. We we were in touch uh, over the financial reform task force oh, that we yeah. put together. And that was a pretty cool exercise, as I recall. You actually drafted legislation, uh, kind of the. Well, we were going to. So we got like 15 bipartisan, really well respected uh, financial people, including like Alice Rivlin, uh, was it Bob Steele, uh, uh, Bob Lighton, uh, Peter Wallison, Alan Blinder. And, and they, they agreed on this uh, plan to reform the financial system. And then we had two uh, law firms, including um, we had the head of uh, Sullivan and Cromwell on, and they were going to turn this into legislation. Um, but we just never got that quite that far. But we did introduce the, basically the only bipartisan plan that was, you know, that anybody developed during that day. Yeah, it was kind of a lot of the elements of that plan, as I recall, found ultimately found their way into the Dodd-Frank legislation that actually yeah. got passed. Yeah, right. Yeah. I remember that very, very well. And then you went on to uh, another uh, think tank, the uh, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Is that right? Do I have that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I spent about half my time on building, trying to get my own clients, and then half of the time as a senior fellow there wrote on a wide variety of topics. And I think that you that, that's where you really got interested in uh, questions about uh, competition, market yeah. structure, antitrust, uh, market concentration, those kinds of issues, which is what we're going to talk about today with you yeah. in, in just a bit. As you know, uh, Joe, uh, we, we have a bit of a game here with the statistics before we get, actually get to the big topic. And I, I, I think you told me you're going to play the game. That's what I'm, I'm playing. I got two statistics. Oh, okay. One, one for now and one for the one main for topic. Excellent. Yeah. Good. Perfect. He's ready. He's armed with statistics. <laughs> That's very good. And now you're at MITRE. At, uh, now I'm, I'm a senior principal economist at MITRE Corporation. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about MITRE? And, and yeah, it's, it's this huge uh, nonprofit that works almost exclusively with the federal government uh, it works very closely with a wide variety of agencies, and uh, most of its work is highly technical. So it, it, it works on, it, it'll help agencies uh, buy their, choose what computer equipment to, to buy and help them go through the process of buying it. It helps with uh, man managing the data that they, can, that they gather. The IRS is a big client. Uh, helping them learn how to protect that data. They help uh, some of the agencies with satellites. Um, they've helped uh, the FAA sort of think about remodernizing remodern the air traffic control system. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing what they do. Yeah, really. And um, it's just really nice, dedicated people. 
uh, and I'm working on a project there uh, that's studying the um, great power, the rise of great power competition. Yeah, I want to come back to that in a little bit, talk a little bit more about your great power competition. It looks fascinating. Well, one quick question about that, though. Did you, because you're tackling a, a number of different issues that are related to the uh, power dynamics between US, China, and other major powers. Are supply chains in there as well? You're focusing yeah, on so yeah. One, one, one group is studying uh, supply chains and they're focusing on uh, looking forward on the MNRA supply chains and trying to make sure that a lot of that work and development is done in the US, um, but also that we're not dependent on unreliable countries for, for that technology in the future. Um, they have another looking at the digital Silk Road and the big investments in, in Africa and Asia for um, that the Chinese are helping to fund for developing uh, uh, modern uh, information networks. Um, so yep. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely come back to that in a yeah. little bit. Um, but uh, thank you. Thanks uh, for the introduction. And it's again, really very good to have you. So let's, uh, let's play the game. Uh, we're going to talk about the statistics, the economic <coughs> statistics, uh, mostly focused on the past week. Uh, and just to remind everyone, uh, the best statistic for this game is one that is not so easy that it's a slam dunk that we're all going to get, but not too hard that without a bit of questioning and quizzing, we, we can't, we can't get it. And it's related to something, you know, about, the broader, what's going on in the broader economy it gives us some sense of what's going on. And, and one thing I'd, I'd like to ask also is how are you feeling about things? I'll have to say, I feel a lot better about the economy today. I mean, meaningfully better about the economy today and its prospects than I did just literally a week ago uh, when we were talking about the jobs data or certainly two weeks ago. And I'm just curious if you're feeling the same way uh, as I am. And, you know, my statistic, if, if you don't guys don't take my statistic out, cause I'm going to go last. If you don't take my statistic, I, I, that'll highlight it. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure Ryan's going to take my statistic. He always, you know, always figures out how to do that. Yeah. But uh, we'll find, we'll see. Well, we always go, you know, we generally go with Ryan first, but let's, 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 let's mix it up. Let's go with Chris first. Uh, let's hear your statistic, Chris. All right. Uh, this was a rich week for statistics. I had a hard time choose. I've got a number here. Uh, I could choose from. I'm going to go with um, 0.7% though. This one kind of stuck out. Well, uh, I mean, me. immediately comes to mind, Ryan. I know Ryan's like saying this is this is a retail sales. This email today, yeah. Yeah, yeah retail sales. Yeah. It did. Yep. Okay. yep. okay, you violated the first rule. I, I <laughs> think I violated all the, all your rules. That's yeah, that. too easy. But okay, well, fair say, enough. I'll, I'll go to another one if you prefer. No, 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 no. That's retail sales. That that's a good something. The good, very good to highlight though. Go go ahead. Good, and I think it, but I think it goes to your last point about feeling a lot better because this one uh, was was a surprise, right? The uh, the movies analytics forecast was uh, for negative point three percent. Is that Ryan? Is that, <laughs> that Ryan's was a, forecast? Yeah, that was me. Oh, okay. <laughs> you had a negative. Yeah, I, I usually uh, get this one pretty close. Uh, my was statistic surprised. was actually related to this. Like vehicles <laughs> is just really puzzling to me. So right. unit yeah, sales that... fell by a million, but nominal spending at uh, motor vehicle and parts went up 0.5%. Okay, just, just that's where I was going. Yep. Just yep. to frame it though for a second, retail sales are sales of things, stuff, 
one thing stuff is vehicles. So vehicles are in these numbers. We knew that in the month, vehicle sales were very weak because not because there isn't demand, but because there's just no supply. You know, car makers sales. can't produce vehicle of uh, vehicles. New, and new vehicles. we thought, and Ryan thought that that would mean that would be a big drag on this number because vehicle purchases is a big part of the number. But no, we got a pretty sizable increase of 0.7. So, so what's going on? What drove that? Yeah, so uh, so in terms of the vehicles themselves, it's the uh, it's parts and used vehicles, right? So people can't buy new cars; they are fixing up their old cars, and that seems to have been enough to offset uh, the loss in terms of um, of uh, or the weakness in new vehicle sales. But then outside of that, the uh, retail sales were were strong uh, pretty much across the board, right? You had uh, strong growth in in sporting goods and hobby stores and general merchandise. Some weakness in electronics. I chalk that up to some of the supply chain issues and appliances. Uh, but uh, overall, right, this is a, this report indicates that consumer is still very healthy and willing to, to spend, wanting to spend. Uh, so to your question, do you feel uh, more optimistic? Certainly after seeing this, I'm feeling more optimistic uh, that with the Delta variant uh, falling, confidence should uh, start to pick up again. We, start, we should be off and running once again. See, I thought hey, the, the Delta variant was gonna weigh on retail sales. Uh, and then when the number came out, I'm like, all right, maybe people went online shopping again, but non-store retail sales weren't anything yeah. to write home about. So it was a, they were it was positive, a surprising. Right? Yeah, it was positive, but it wasn't, you know, the growth you usually see for non-store. Was there, was there anything in the report that you found cautionary or you, well, worrisome? It was all positive. Well, gas, gas station sales are up are positive and, you know, you have to always read, you have to read a little bit into that. Is that because the gas prices or people are traveling more? So what's it's the, prices, right? That's prices. prices in this case, that's prices. Right? Yeah. Right. So that's the, yeah, that could be a, a risk factor. But, but if you exclude, re, take retail sales, take out the autos because of the, who knows, yep. take out the gas because that's price. You, you were still left with a pretty solid increase. I think. Well, I well, think the same 0.7. If you exclude. Was it 0.7? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Excluding autos was 0.8. So. Yeah. Here's the thing I found fascinating, you know, taking a little bit of a step back. Retail sales, you know, surged during the pandemic. Not, not, in, not in the immediate, when we got immediately hit, then everything stopped. But pretty soon, we were all sheltering in place and we couldn't go to restaurants. We couldn't go to ball games. We couldn't travel. So we started buying stuff. So, and retail sales are purchases of stuff. So stuff soared. And if you take a look at a chart of retail sales, the level of retail sales is really high, even higher than you would have, could have even possibly imagined pre-pandemic, assuming there was no pandemic, right? And it doesn't feel like it's coming back in. It, it, feel, it feels like it might be leveling off, yeah, you know, at a high level, but it's not coming back in. Yeah, it's, right? and sporting goods is the one that makes me scratch my head, right? I could understand during the pandemic, you know, you're not going to the gym, you're going to buy your Peloton. <laughs> um, but now it's continuing. So what's going on there? People still choosing yeah. to not to go to, uh, back to gyms and they're still buying another piece of equipment. And... Although on the service side of the economy, that's picking up too, right? So like consumer spending broadly, stuff and services, you know, experiences, everything, shooting the whole shooting match, pretty high, pretty high level yeah. of con consumer spending, which is encouraging, you know, very encouraging. Um, any, anything about 
uh, Ryan, what uh, Chris said you would add color to or take umbrage with? No, I no. think you hit it all. I mean, the, yeah. the cautionary tale is that the next few months retail sales could really be volatile because, you know, retailers are warning people to shop early. So that's going to throw off the timing of all the seasonal adjustment factors. So uh, the data is going to get, we could get a really strong October and November, and then December could be an absolute disaster. I guess the supply chain issues mm -hmm. are behind a lot of that. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Okay. So at least so far, you know, the supply chain issues, the higher inflation, which is sapping, you know, real after tax, uh, you know, incomes, none of that seems to be even the Delta doesn't a variant doesn't seem to be denting it. So that's good. All, all, yeah. all, all very encouraging. Good. Um, Ryan, I do want to point out on your forecasting, I think the Corterra data, the business to business spending data, uh, you know, Corterra tracks B2B spending and we can see what retailers are buying before they sell it to consumers. Uh, that's not actually Moody's bought Corterra not long ago. That, that I think was pretty strong uh, in, in September. That might've given you a, you don't use that data in your estimate, do you? No, I'm starting to. Yeah, you should. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, so I I'm should. kind of running parallel, you know, forecasts, like, you know, my go-to model versus one that incorporates Corterra. I'll see how over the next few months, you know, which one run, uh, which one wins. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Okay. Uh, Ryan, you're up. And Joe, I'm coming to you next. So get ready, man. Okay. okay. All right. And we're- All right. Well, I didn't get the tell. memo. Where we, I didn't get the memo that we had to have an upbeat number, but- Oh. I have an explanation of why it was weak. 67, okay. 67 67.2. 67.2. Uh, it's an index. Okay. Uh, I know UMish came out and that was pretty soft. Oh, you're going uh, down the right track. Okay. UMish is University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index. And that uh, got nailed by the Delta a couple months ago in September or excuse me, August, I think, came back a little bit in September and it came back, we got that data point today, came back down again and it's very low. Is that the expectational component of the Uni University of Michigan? Very impressed, yes. Ding, 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 ding. See, Joe, I do that when I get the answer right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. and I, see, oh there, there you go. Here comes got Chris the, with emojis. Chris and his emojis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, but, so, go, yeah, but what's going, I, I really want to know what's going on here. Why are, why are people so nervous, at least as measured by U the University of Michigan survey? Well, over the last few months, you had you know, the Delta variant has been a weight. You've had uh, an acceleration in inflation. Gasoline prices recently have started to tick up. But I think you know, our forecast was well below the cons consensus. It was 71.4 for the total consumer confidence index. Uh, it's because of the debt ceiling. So if you look at Google Trends, searches mm. for debt ceiling, and you go back to past instances where we had this nasty debt ceiling fight, it always hits consumer confidence, you know, right away. So you know, that's why, you know, we were well below the consensus on, on this forecast. So, you know, I think reason for optimism is I think confidence is going to pick back up over the next few months because, you know, we don't have the debt ceiling. We don't have to worry about that until December. But stronger job growth, you know, I think that's going to really start to lift uh, Michigan going forward. Well, and hopefully inflation subsides uh, here. Yeah, hopefully. Well, yeah. it's not it's not going to over the next couple of months because of energy prices. of the energy prices. But excluding energy, it feels like it already has rolled over, though. I mean, the consumer price index, core CPI, excluding food and energy, kind of what economists look at because that's the best gauge of future inflation. 
that it's high 4% year over year, but that's, that has definitively rolled over. It was like four and a half percent. Yeah. Okay. But what was interesting in the CPI data is that, uh, all the gain in September was in the non-reopening components. So the non-reopening are, you know, or the, the reopening components are, uh, rental car prices, lodging away from home, which is hotels, motels, airfares. Typically, that was adding, you know, a little bit to the CPI over the last few months. Now that's essentially neutral, uh, and vehicles, new and used vehicle prices are are beginning to moderate a little bit. That's hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that I thought that did, you know the one other index or sentiment survey. There are now a number of consumer sentiment surveys. Morgan, Morning Consult has a pretty good one. Da- actually, a very good one. It comes out daily. It asks the same questions as the University of Michigan, but on a daily basis. And it's online, so they have a lot more respondents. Is the Conference Board survey. that uh, That's another uh, monthly survey. That also weakened because of Delta, but that's held up a lot better, hasn't it, than the University of Michigan survey? Yeah, it has. And well, the Conference Board is much more uh, labor market sensitive. So you know, even though job growth has slowed, it's still you know, pretty decent. Unemployment rate's coming down. UI benefits have, have dropped recently. So I think that's helping cushion the blow to the conference board measure. Yeah. Chris, were you even close to getting that number? Or did I, I, I blew you out of the water? Expectations? Yeah. Did you, were you even in I was city? in the right ballpark. I was thinking. Oh, in your mind. Uh, in your mind, you were in the right ballpark. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. <laughs> you jumped the uh, jump. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you got to be quick in this game, Joe. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Right. In right, my Joe, mind, you... I'm always in the wrong ballpark. <laughs> I work on that. Well, you're up, Joe. Let's, let's Thank you. Okay, so, so mine's uh, 4.2%. 4.2%. Um, is, is this an economic statistic? Yes. I'll I, I give you a hint. A- annualized. In, did it come out this week? Did it come out this week? Uh I, I, I don't know. No, it's for, oh, it's, a recent, uh, it's a recent it's, number, though. It's, it's for it's for September, so it was uh, it was okay. taken this week or, or this month. Okay, four point two. The unemployment rate is four eight, so that's not it. Um, what else is four two? Four point two percent could be some kind of. Uh, it's not the hiring rate, or no. no. Um, can you give us yeah, another? I was, I was thinking separations or quits rate. It's a New York Fed statistic. Oh, you know what? I don't really follow the New York Fed very carefully. Is this because they because they, 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 they have a bunch cast? of surveys? Huh? Is it their nowcast estimate of GDP? Nope. They I know they came out with they have a bunch of uh, like a consumer expectations. Yeah. Consumer mm-hmm. is and it getting consumer? warmer? Yeah, I don't. You know, Joe, I don't. I don't look at them very. Should I? I guess I should be looking at them. <laughs> is it inflation expectation? It's inflation. Ex- it's oh. a three-year, three-year uh, ex- looking forward expectation, which in the, the one year is five percent. So that means that they're actually predicting that inflation in years two and three is going to be well below four point two. Hmm. How the much survey was four point eight percent for one year? So it's. But that close. tracks gasoline prices very closely. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, I would imagine so does the, the Fed survey. Yeah, that's you what think? I would imagine. Joe, how much yeah. weight do you put on uh, inflation expectations? Obviously, are very important for understanding the outlook for inflation. Because if 
Yeah. People believe that inflation is going to be high in the future, then it's more likely, in fact, it will be high because they'll demand higher wages. Those wages get embedded in, they'll undermine margins, businesses will raise prices. But how much weight do you put on expectation, consumer expectations of inflation as a, as a barometer of future inflation? In, in the short term, not much, because I figure that the markets will take care of it. You, know, you have these shortages and, you know, the, the businesses are trying their best to get around those shortages and eliminate them. And we'll, you know, in the future, we'll have, they'll figure out a way. Um, so natural shortages, I don't think, you know, I think that's just, in the short term, inflation isn't driven so much by expectations. And the expectations can change a lot. But in the longer term, I, I give them a, I, I think it's very significant for the reasons you just said, is it creates this internal dynamic. Right, right. Yeah, I, uh, you know, there's a market-based expectation. So what investors are thinking, and that's embedded in uh, interest rates primarily, and you can kind of tease out what they think. There's surveys of businesses, there's surveys of economists, and then on their inflation expectations. And then there's these, um, uh, different consumer surveys uh, and where we ask, where they're asked questions about inflation. So of all of those different measures, uh, where would consumer inflation expectations stack up in terms of their information uh, about future inflation? Yeah, well, I, I would guess that, um, that it, it, I, I would tend to put more weight on the business expectations because mm -hmm. I mean, I think the where the consumer markets in expectations come in is really in this internal dynamic. It, 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 businesses, I think, are better at looking at just the fundamentals. Um, and so, you know, for the fundamentals, you know, I'd look to business expectations. Okay. But if, if, if you do see consumers jumping up, especially in, and it, it remains sustained, and I think you have to worry about, okay, is, you know, have we gotten back in the situation where we had stagflation, where people just, everybody expects and demands that, you know, their, their wages, their prices are going to go up by five, 6%, you know. In, yeah, I don't know about you, but yeah. I'm getting a lot, I'm hearing the word stagflation a lot more these days. Yeah, and I, I'm not worried about it because I, I think these, you know, this this statistic shows that at least consumers don't think it's uh, you know maybe they're out used they're thinking three three point five and also I you know we inflation's been below two for so long and people got comfortable with it and then when it rises and people are getting wages are going up and then everybody screams you know inflation I think you know I think we can live for a couple of years with three percent inflation and will be just fine. And I think consumer expectations generally are on the high side anyway, right? Because yeah. people just think they're higher than they actually are, or maybe it's not that they're, they're actually the consumer price indices that we economists look at are quality adjusted, right? So, or in the, and they're adjusted in lots of different ways that uh, consumers don't, you know, that's not the way they think about it. They're in the store and they see, you know, what they're paying for the things that they're buying. And so that, that doesn't quality adjust, but if you quality adjust, which is in the CPI, you get lower rates of inflation. So they tend to be a little bit higher. 
but uh okay good that's it that was that was good uh uh I, I need to pay more attention to what comes out coming out of the new york fed do you crying do you look at their releases they they have a fair number you look at them carefully yeah i do i pay attention you do to them. okay that, that survey is, is a good one to look at i also look at it it's not from the new york fed but comparing it to the poll survey new york fed has a now cast estimate so it's good to compare what ours is saying versus some of the other uh, metrics out there now cast meaning uh estimates of current quarter gdp yeah and the poll survey meaning what's the poll survey our poll survey our that's our measure of inflation expectations correct right which is a compilation of all those different measures that i articulated yeah mm -hmm. good okay you ready for mine I might violate my rule too, but uh, here goes. 4.3 million. Oh, quits. Yeah, that was too easy. I got a second one though, just to make it a raise the, the bar here a little bit. What, what does Chris have over there? He's got like a cheat sheet. He keeps looking down and That was actually on my, uh, uh, I told you I had Googling a it. <laughs> no that way. That was my backup. You're, you're writing things down now? No, no, I got nothing down here. <laughs> but I had that, that was my backup statistic. Oh, right. Oh, with retail sales. Right. I see. I see. Yeah. 4.3 million quits. That, that, that's a record high. Uh, yep. And that's, that's the number of people who quit their job, said, hey, I'm leaving uh, in uh, the month of, uh, of uh, September. Was it September? No. August. August. Month of August, because it's one month lag, the month of August. Um, that's amazing. Right, I think it was I think it was almost three percent of the labor force quit. Can you just annualize that for a second? That that's just an incredible yeah. number. And quits are up uh, pretty much across all industries. I mean, obviously, higher in the leisure and hospitality industry, accommodation and restaurants, higher in uh, retail. Uh, you know, in the lower paying uh, uh, industries, we've seen higher quits. But manufacturing. Uh, transportation, distribution, uh, construction, although that was higher back in the, in the housing boom before the financial crisis, financial services, everything, you know, very, very high. So that just goes to this, the, the large number of open positions out there. They're not quite at the record high that they were a month or two ago, but people I obviously feel like they can quit their job and find another one pretty fast. And, uh, and all, you know, I think the pandemic also has kind of had an impact on the collective thinking about work and leisure and what do I want to do? And do I really want to go back to that job I had before, particularly if it was generally low paying, bad hours, and I had a tough boss, you know, if you if you work in the restaurant business or in the uh, hotel business uh, that, you know, the, 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 the work, work arrangements aren't particularly in the, in the favor of, of workers. So I think people are reevaluating things. So that's, that's a pretty amazing statistic. I mean, I think that's, Talking to business people and in, in, uh, in you know our clients and and others, that's becoming or if, if it's not already, it's becoming the number one problem for business people. They're trying yeah. to figure out how to fill those open positions. I wonder if you compared that to new unemployment claims. If you could get some rough estimate of how many of those quits already had a job lined up and went from one job to a presumably better job. Yeah, Ryan, you make a point about that in terms of uh, keeping unemployment a little bit elevated, right? Because you've got people in transition, so that tends to lift the unemployment rate uh, a little bit while that while you have a lot of quits going on. It also may explain why we're seeing such large revisions to job growth 
you know, month in, month, month out is because, you know, when we looked back and, you know, when we had elevated quits, I mean, not at the levels that we have now, but when quits are growing this quickly, you know, you get people in between jobs, it, you know, it makes it much more difficult to accurately count the number of people that are non-farm payroll. So that may be one reason why we're seeing these massive upper revisions month in and month out. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Uh, any other, Oh, I did want to mention one thing, you know, uh, Joe, we, uh, each picked a statistic to follow on a regular basis and, and kind of call it out when it was doing something. We, we thought these, these statistics were important to judging what was going on in the broader economy. And we uh, promised to call them out if they started to move in one direction or another. And I'm going to call out copper prices. Have you guys noticed? They're right. They're up. They are up a lot, <clears throat> up to $4.75 per pound. That's about as high as it's been. You know, you have to go, there was, uh, I think we got to a little bit higher, penny or two higher than that back in May. But you know th that's rip roaring, right? That's saying that this economy is global economy is kind of kicking back into gear uh, as uh, Delta winds down here. Another reason for a bit of optimism, I think. You know, with regard, I, it may also be related to all the global supply chain issues that's kind of come to the fore again, uh, uh, kind of in the collective kind of conversation and psyche. And uh, like all markets, uh, commodity markets and, and the copper market has been somewhat disrupted. So that might be also partly explaining what's going on. But four bucks seventy-five. I mean, anything over four bucks is rip roaring. Three bucks is typical. That's where you would expect it to say, be uh, in a typical economy. So that's a that's a strong economy. And, and Chris, I I think yeah. your statistic also right. Yeah, made a headline. Uh, UI claims, unemployment, unemployment insurance, insurance. New, new unemployment insurance claims are down to 293,000 last week. Uh, right, so below the 300,000 psychological barrier. But but there's an asterisk, and Ryan Huge will call me asterisk. out if I don't. Huge. <laughs> right, asterisk. seasonal factors are, are certainly a big uh, consideration here, but I think there's still something there, and the, the retreat of the Delta variant is real. Um, and it's having a real effect on those uh, UI claims. But yeah, I'd say moving in the right direction, but let's not get overly excited. Next week, they could pop up above 300K once again. So. And again, what's the stake in the ground? What what would you consider to be a, a level of UI initial claims for unemployment insurance that are consistent with a well-functioning economy? Yeah, I'd be looking for 250 or lower. 250. So we're, that's, you know, even with seasonal adjustment, we're, Getting pretty close. We're getting getting there. pretty close. And the trend is what matters, right? As long as we're moving down, that's that's what we want to see. Okay, so we'll take take all, all this we, what we just discussed. Uh, I'm feeling a lot better about the economy. Q4 is going to be a lot stronger than Q3, and it feels like we're going to enter into 2022 on a high note as the delta winds down. Things seem to be revving up. Anyone? Are you on board with that? Everyone? Yeah. Yeah. Joe, you feel the same way? Yeah. I think unless we get a, another variant of the, of the virus, which, you know, we could get a, a worse variant. And if it starts out in Africa or Asia where, you know, uh, people haven't gotten vaccinated and it spreads. Don't bring us quickly. down, Joe. Don't do it. <laughs> well, do I, it, I, I think the odds are low, but that that's the only real risk I see. Other than energy prices, I really don't understand why they've peaked so much unless it's, unless it's the producers looking forward and seeing a lot higher demand. 
Yeah, I think you're right about the energy prices. You know, yeah. I think it's idiosyncratic market to market, right? Uh, especially when it goes to natural gas, which is a uh, localized market. Uh, it varies quite a bit, but I, I think it's the same, roughly the same dynamic in lots of markets. You know, big increase in demand. You know, we've seen a big pickup in demand, and uh, the supply side of these markets just take time to you know kick into gear. And businesses like the higher prices; they make a boatload of money. <laughs> So they want to hold on to those higher prices as long as they can. And they're kind of looking at each, at each other's competitors. By the way, this is a pretty good segue into the big topic. They're looking at each other's competitors and saying, hey, guys, maybe we can hold on to these higher prices for a little bit longer. But ultimately, these are competitive markets, right? And competition, you know, juices flow. People start producing more and those supply side uh, responds, come, meets demand and prices start to come in again. So it feels like the energy markets, again, there's a lot of other things going on like decarbonization in China and you know, uh, pipeline issues from Russia to Europe and you know, all kinds of things going on. But uh, you know, mo most fundamentally, that feels like the dynamic that's at play in these energy markets. I but even with the higher energy prices, you know, I don't think, I'm not too concerned about consumer spending because if you look at gasoline as a share of total consumption, it's still well below what we saw 2011, 2012, 2013. Heating oil makes up a very small share of consumer spending. Household balance sheets are in really good shape. So I think the consumer can digest you know, the recent run-up in, in gasoline prices. Yeah. Does that help, Joe? Are you buying into yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy long. Yeah, right. We said short. <laughs> I keep getting those. Okay. It's, <laughs> I, uh, I, my I, broker I, handles it. Yeah. And all the high frequency data, you know, the Google mobility, uh, you know, the number of people passing through TSA checkpoints, even uh, box office receipts, all in the last couple of weeks have, have made noticeable improvements. So that kind of, you know, made me feel a lot more comfortable where we're headed. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. Well, that's all. That all feels pretty good. So let's uh, move on to the big topic, which is uh, co competition, competitive markets, antitrust. And Joe and, Joe and I have been having conversations around these issues for quite some time. I actually uh, really bugged him when I was asked to moderate a discussion with Amy Klobuchar. She's the Congress, excuse me, the senator from uh, Minnesota who obviously ran for president, a great senator, and she's very focused on antitrust issues. I think just today or yesterday, she introduced some uh, legislation in the Senate that's going to line up with legislation that was already passed in the House. And we'll come back to that later in the conversation with Joe. Uh, but Joe is very helpful. She wrote a book called Antitrust. Uh, it was just a, a very a nice history of, from her perspective of antitrust law and some of the limitations of that and gave uh, a number of suggestions on how to approach antitrust in, in, in the world we live in today with big tech and big pharma. And uh, Joe was very helpful and uh, educated me, uh, getting me up to speed uh, for that moderation. So it's, it's good to have you on the, on, on the podcast to talk about this, Joe. And I guess I want to start with the basic question. Do you think markets are becoming more concentrated? Are they becoming more dominated by a few companies? Uh, is that 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 is definitely the narrative uh, that yeah. most people have bought into? Is it is it true? Uh, you know, from your perspective, is that's what's happening here? 
Yeah, so I, I don't think the evidence bears that out, really. I think it's, um, it, 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 you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these economic statistics are complicated. And, and, you know, if you really dive into it, you get a different picture than this, you know, what you see on the surface. And I think a, a lot of the studies that have concluded that uh, concentration has increased has look, have looked at broad markets like transportation, uh, like for two-digit, uh, you know, the government divides markets uh, into, uh, like there's a two-digit NAICS code and, and this five-digit NAICS code, and the five-digit NAICS code is very specific. And NAICS is a North American Industrial Classification System. Are you impressed, yes. Joe? I got that? Yeah, very NAICS. good, very good. So that's so, industry classification. Yeah, when you look at the two-digit numbers, then concentration has increased. But a lot of companies within that broad definition don't compete against each other, really. So when you look at the five-digit, the more specific definitions of markets, the concentration ratios are usually much less. Um, and uh, they haven't grown all that much over the last 30 years. And where they are high, they're usually still well below um, the, the guideline that the federal government has for challenging concentration. Um, so the, the federal government does not define them as, the, the number is not high enough for the federal government to define them as concentrated. So, so that like the, one of the statistics people look at is the market share of the top four. So when that gets to 40%, you know, people that is considered relatively high, but that means that those four, you know, average just 10% of the market, which is not, you know, is not a really a dominant position. And meanwhile, there's 60% of the market that's, you know, um, serviced by smaller companies. And also there have been some studies that sh really show that when you look at really specific markets, not just defining um, the, the market specifically, but also just looking at uh, the the area geographic area where the competition occurs. So so for instance, restaurants. You 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 don't go to the next state for a restaurant. You you just go within your 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 own neighborhood. And there they found that concentration uh, has actually decreased and competition has increased largely because you get big national chains that come in and you know, establish themselves in each neighborhood. Meanwhile, you still have the local restaurants, locally owned restaurants or barbershops or whatever. And, and so on the whole, there are very few markets where, you know, the top four really control, say, 80% of the market. Hmm. Well, uh, there, there are a few that uh, notable ones, though, where let, let me just make see yeah. if you agree. Big tech. Yeah. So, it, 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 and again, it, the big thing to remember about um, antitrust is it really depends upon the specific market, mm -hmm. not just yeah. the company in general. Um, it depends upon the market and, and the group of companies that actually compete with each other and that consumers, you know, check before they make a decision. And, you know, there are some areas where uh, uh, tech company has a dominant position. 
but there are a lot of areas where they compete fiercely, like cloud uh, storage now, you know, um, artificial intelligence, um, it, 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 uh, you know, one or two are trying to get their own uh, retail shop set up so they can compete with Amazon. Um, so, so the, the Economist magazine's had a couple of stories about the fact that competition among the big four or five uh, has increased in, spe- in, in specific markets. In other specific markets, uh, there could be a problem. But that, again, you have to look at that specific market. You have, in my opinion, you have to look, is that harming consumers or not? Right. Um, and it certainly isn't, in a, isn't a justification for breaking the company up, which I regard as you know, a, a drastic um, decision or resolution. Okay, so you're saying it, oh, it's complicated, uh, yeah. those things. This is particularly complicated because it goes to defining markets. You know, what is a market? And if you, if you get the definition wrong, you're going to come to a very, you could potentially come to a very wrong conclusion that, yeah. you know, that, the, that the market, the, the actual market is narrow enough that there is actually competition in it. But if you broaden it enough, you can't see it. You get lost yeah. in the data. So, so Amazon's a good case in that. So everybody points to the fact that Amazon has this huge share of uh, online sales, retail sales. But, but there is competition for online sales and Walmart is trying to set up its own store. But Amazon has only a small share of total retail sales. And most people, you know, they consider the local Walmart or the local Safeway. Um, or the local LL Bean store. Um, so, I, so Amazon has to compete against all those other stores. And so, right. when you look at the whole of the retail market, it often has you know a reasonably good share, but not dominant. What about big pharma? There's the big pharma is different. Uh, big pharma, there's I think there's a, a stronger case that uh, there's some antitrust problems. But, but big pharma also, um, you know, the, the model requires a certain degree of size. It, it costs like over $2 billion to develop a drug on average. A lot of 90% or more of your, the drugs you develop are failures and you don't collect anything. You have to have an, uh, the ability, you have to have a huge infrastructure to comply with all the government regulation. And you have to have a huge infrastructure to do all the retail sales. Um, and so they've, this industry has gone to a model where a lot of the experimentation occurs in small companies and investors can bet on specific uh, approaches. And then when this drug starts to prove itself, a big uh, company comes in and buys it up and provides the expertise needed to get through the regulatory per, uh approvals and to get it into um, circulation. So are, are there any markets or industries where you uh, you are more worried about potential uh, market concentration in the uh, impacts of that competition or of that uh, concentration? Yeah, not, not really. You know, I, I think there are certain practices that maybe uh, could be looked at uh, you know, there's been an allegation that when Google has a, uh, an auction for advertising on a certain site, 
it gets to see the last bit and decide whether it will match that or beat it. You could change that so it doesn't get that last look and that might spur competition a little more. Um, so there are little areas like that that I think maybe bear some investigation, but as a whole, uh, no. And, and, and actually, you know, my statistic, um, the second statistic, uh, oh, yeah. every, everybody else had one. Go ahead. Okay. It's 127.5 billion. 127.5 billion. billion. Is this something we, you think we, we can get? Probably not. Probably not. it that way. So I'll just tell you, that's the amount of money that the top five tech firms spend on R&D in 2020. That's twice the amount spent by the top five pharma teams. It's more than the amount spent by the top 10 pharma teams. So, So these companies, they're not just sitting on this cash, you know, giving it back to shareholders or, or making their executives rich. They're, they're investing in a lot of high-tech research that's important to this country. And, and that doesn't always make total sense with their job mode. You know, you, you have Bezos spending a lot of money on space exploration. You know, that's it, great for the country. Uh, you know, if you're an Amazon shareholder, you might wonder, what, you know, what's going on, but you know, they're, they're spending in area after area after area, artificial intelligence, um, MNRA, um, uh, what do you call those computers? To, not, not nuclear computers, but... Uh, I don't know. They, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, I, I hear you, though. Yeah, so, you know, uh, and if we break them up, like some people want to do, what happens to that spending? Who, who picks it up and, and does that research? So, so Ryan, Chris, do you want to push back on what Joe's saying here at all? Well, I mean, I guess uh, I guess I have a question first. It sounds like, are you arguing that this uh, two-tiered system is optimal? So, what you describe for pharma is you have a few uh, firms that are able to take advantage of economies of scale. But I see that in the finance. I see that in tech. Right? You have a few players in right, banking. Right, you have a few yeah. banks, and then you have a lot of fintechs uh, exploring yeah. and and innovating. Yeah, and eventually it, it, get bought up. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it is fairly uh, fairly healthy. I, I, you know, there's some exceptions to cases where a company may pay another company not to launch a generic. You know, maybe that should be changed, but that's you know. That's a relatively minor thing. I think this division of responsibility into small companies that focus on a promising technique or development uh, and that are totally focused on it, get a lot of help from venture capitalists. Uh, and then when they, when they have to you know, get big because they have to get, deal with all the regulations, they have to run the trials, then they go to somebody who's experienced and can do that. So I, I used to be play poker not very well with the guy who invented um, honest tea. And he, he got to a certain size and then he, he sold to uh, Coca-Cola. And the minute he did that, he had a nationwide distribution system and an advertising budget to reach everybody in the country. 
he couldn't have done that if it stayed small. Well, that's a yeah. that's economy.com so, story, right? My 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 company story, right? We yeah, we were 15 years old. We got to a point where our the way we had to grow was to go global, which we started to try to do. We opened up an office in uh, Sydney and London, but quickly figured out that the costs of doing this were crazy high, and it's going to be take us forever to do it. And then Moody's knocked on the door and said, "Hey, I've got this, you know, global infrastructure." And of course, Moody's is in every, you know, capital on the planet. So, uh, and had a sales force all around the world. That seemed to make a lot of sense. Uh, but, uh, but that's certainly our story. Chris, you had something else you wanted to say or push back on? Uh, not really. That's okay. Uh, so that that to my mind, that's that is an optimal state. Now, if I look at oh, you uh, agree with like that? A, I, I think it's a natural yeah. state as well that uh, you would have this yeah. type of consolidation and uh, uh, and you see yeah. that across industries, whether it's tech or finance or or pharma, you know, yeah, go across the board. That seems to be the the natural state of affairs. Yeah. I, I also say that you know there are legitimate concerns over privacy, over data security. Uh, over political, the political power of large companies, but but those are sep- those are not antitrust pro- problems. They require separate treatment and in, in some cases legislation. Um, you know, I think I think if somebody is going to hold your credit card data, and, and you know, and there is a breach, they ought to you know they ought to be punished, and they ought to have a strong incentive uh, to keep your data safe. And if somebody takes your data and uses it, say the like the Cambridge Analytica case, that you know there ought to be a big, huge penalty associated with that 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 deters anybody from trying that again. But again, that's not an antitrust problem. It's not a competition problem. Although there's debate around that, right? I mean, there's this, uh, and you uh, it'd be good if you could explain. But there's this uh, 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 general shift in thinking. Uh, that uh, that uh, it's more about uh, consumer surplus. You know, it's about more about uh, protecting the consumer. It's also about things like uh, uh, dominance of the po- political uh, system or of uh, the dominance of the uh, information flows, the ability to uh, control data and information. You know, kind of the things that why big tech is so making people so nervous it's that they have such dominant control over all these other aspects of our lives and that 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 should be part of antitrust right is that yeah i, I don't think right? it should yeah yeah i don't think it should be um part of antitrust i mean i i basically think there are four groups of people who study this and one group is just against bigness period yeah i think there shouldn't be not only don't they think there should be an Amazon, they don't think there should be a Walmart. They don't even think there should be a safe way. They think it ought to be law local stores. Who would lead the way on possible. that? Who, who would be? Um, Open Markets Institute, okay. I think, is pretty right. consistent on that. Um, on financial services. Yeah. Yep. And, and um, so, you know, I... I, I Disagree, but I do think we need. You said to four. You said four. There's one. Oh, so, the, other so the other three. Let me get my teacher. So, so one. Um, the the second most stringent group basically thinks you ought to do away with um, the consumer welfare standard. Right now, the key test is is what what you're studying 
does that hurt the consumer? And if it doesn't hurt the consumer, doesn't erode quality or raise prices, then the government ought to usually stay out of it. And, and that's the Borkian. So that yes. goes all the way back to uh, yeah. uh, uh, Bork, Bork yeah. and Posner and, and a couple others. Um, and, 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 and yeah. Very, very famous legal mind uh, wrote a book called the, I think the antitrust paradox, right? In 1978, yes. that kind of dominant has been dominant kind of intellectual foundation for antitrust policy yeah. beginning with Reagan and almost up till now, really. Yeah. Okay. And it stemmed really from a history where courts had in the government had gotten really strict and in one famous case, uh, broke up a merger that would have given a safe, a, a shopping uh, store 7% to the local market. They thought that was too high. Um, it, you know, and most people now think that in other cases went too far. But so the second group basically says, we ought to do away with the consumer welfare standard. We ought to consider the interests of workers. We ought to consider, um, it, 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 we ought to consider the, the interests of the small businesses that, uh, that big companies compete against um, and, and, so on. Um, and uh, then the, the third group. Can I say, can I just, just to, yeah. just to, because people might hear these terms. Yeah. Those are the so-called neo-Brandeisians. Brandeisians. Yeah. yeah. Okay. After Brandeis. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have these Borkians saying, you know, antitrust, <laughs> yeah. if that's, if that's a word, Borkians that say antitrust should really be about preserving consumer welfare Meaning, basically, if you have a combination that leads to higher prices, that's a bad thing. You want yeah. to make sure that there's competition, prices but, are yeah. really low. And then you but, have the Brandeisian yeah. view saying, no, 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 it, you know, consumer welfare matters, but it's much broader than that. It's about, you know, monopsony power, you know, the company controlling wages and the labor market. It's about, it's about the dominance of, of, uh, the media or political influence that uh, it's just a modern, a broader set of criteria for deciding whether antitrust should be used. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and then the third group basically uh, agrees with the history of the last 40 years, but thinks that on the margin antitrust policy should have been a little tougher uh, the last 10 years and, and going forward. And so you, you need, you don't need to redo the, the, the laws but you do need to have a little stricter enforcement within the current uh, understanding. And then the last group basically thinks we're doing fine. And you're the and, last group. Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, I, I do see antitrust pro problems or possible problems there, but I think you need to look very carefully at the specific markets and, uh, and measure if, consumers are being hurt or if innovation is being slowed. And well, yeah. Yeah. One, one uh, observation that I think is supportive of your perspective, like, you know, we're doing pretty well here. We, you know, what's the big deal is inflation. I mean, a bar, you know, abstracting from the recent surge in inflation, which is pandemic related, has nothing to do with other, anything other than that. Inflation has been very low. Uh, here in the United States and globally, very, very low. So if we were having a trouble with markets being uncompetitive, wouldn't we see higher prices? 
right? That's yeah. kind of what you're arguing. And, and there's there's been a couple of influential studies that basically argue that where, where there has been concentrate an increase in concentration in the market, it's because some companies have gotten very good at using information and, and computers and, and modern technology to get more much more efficient and reduce costs and increase their pro- profits and uh, increase their market share. So the market's competitive. It's just that some companies are just beating the competition badly. And, and the answer there is, I think, to figure out why the bottom half of the companies aren't, aren't quick at adopting uh, new technology. You know, a lot of it's, you know, it, it, there's a, a pretty strong link between IT spending or in spending on uh, other intangible assets and profitability. And so, you know, a few firms in a couple of industries have really revolutionized their industry. And, and we have to try and encourage the other firms to sort of copy that hmm. and become more competitive. Now on the, pri- on the inflation, our, uh, the point that inflation is low, therefore what are yeah. we worried about? There's two retorts I've heard. Curious to hear what your reaction is to them. The first is, well, yeah, that in- true inflation is low, but it's a, it, you know, it's a lot lower. Let's say in Europe, you know, the other big developed economy, and uh, that's because they have uh, more competition. They are much stricter with antitrust laws. You can see that clearly with the way they've been handling uh, big yeah. technology, and therefore. Uh, it, you know, yes, inflation is low here for a lot of other reasons, but it should be even lower because, uh, and it's not because we're, we're uncompetitive. What do you yeah. think of that? But I, I think Europe's making a big mistake. That they've gotten very aggressive on these firms um, and are, are really bending, I think, the, the laws themselves. I, I think some of the decisions have been overturned, I think. Others will, but you, you look at how is Europe doing on, on new tech? Not very well, you know. With one or two exceptions, all the new tech is happening here or in China. Um, you know, Uber got started here, uh, Facebook is here. You, know, you just go down the line, and they haven't been very good at attracting and growing new tech companies. And in pharma, it, you know, a couple of decades ago. They got really tight, tightened up pricing laws and reduced prices, which was great for consumers. But all the um, research started going to the U.S. And so the U.S. is where people do pharma research, much less so in Europe. And, and so, you know, Europe, the policy they pursued made them uncompetitive in pharma research. So I, I don't think that's a good model to follow. Okay, you know, fair enough. Uh, and, I, yeah. and I guess you could also argue: Do we really want in Europe's inflation rate? I mean, yeah, <laughs> and and we want to be dynamic. I mean, you, I don't think people think of Europe as being dynamic anymore. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the second kind of retort is: uh, it's in, it's not about pricing anymore. It's about uh, several other things, and I, I'm going to list each one of them and and see what you think. And you've already talked to it to some degree, but just to get it on the table yeah. and get your view, your views very clearly. Uh, the, there is a, an argument that 
uh, it squelches innovation, right? That uh, the big guys, the big tech, the big pharma, the big fintech, you know, come in when they see competition coming, they buy that competition, you know, economy.com, Moody's buys economy.com. And that that reduces the amount of innovation that goes on, that we would have seen yeah. even more innovation if those companies continued on and uh, you know, did the things that they were doing. Yeah. And, and I think there's this widely cited study that finds that in pharma, that's happened in some cases. Um, but I think that, you know, there's, just, there's some good reasons for that. But uh, in tech, not so much. Everybody, you know, there have been a huge number of mergers and acquisitions over the last several years. But all the focus, all the criticism is on two or three, Instagram being one of them, uh, Facebook's purchase. And, it, and people say, well, Instagram would have been this you know, semi-dominant company that could have really competed with Facebook. Maybe, but maybe not. You know, maybe Facebook just would have copied, you know, within the legal standard, copied all of what Instagram was doing and just beaten it. Um, you, you just don't know. But what you do know is that these companies, these big companies buy up a lot of small companies. And that's the exit point for um, for, for venture capitalists who, who fund these small companies. And in, in venture capital, IT investment by venture capitalists has been very strong. So, so people, it's true that nobody really wants to start up a small company that's going to take on Facebook head on. But there are a lot of sort of other technologies, other markets that are, can be very valuable that companies go after. And then when they become, you know, when they prove themselves, then, then a big company will, will acquire them and use that technology and, you know, like they do in drugs, expand the market and give it to everybody. Um, and, and that's, you know, if, if you shut that off, then what happens to the venture capitalists? What happens to these small firms? You know, it's, yeah. not, it's probably they don't do so well. Well, the other thing I, I've noticed is that some people are just entrepreneurial, right? They're, yeah. they, they don't want to be... They don't want to grow. They don't want to stick with a company when it becomes big and more bureaucratic, and you got all kinds of check the box kinds of things going on, which is, you know, you need that in large multinational organizations. But that's not the world for them. So they go start a company. They they get out. They go start another company, and then they get out. They sell again, and they go to start another company. So it's it's almost like you're freeing them to be able to do what they're best at, and that's yeah, companies. Yeah, a great, a great example is diapers.com, where uh, Amazon was selling diapers to a, a third-party company uh, on its platform, and Amazon decided to get in the business. And they basically bought this company up and sort of shoved it out. Um, but, but Amazon then found out it was dealing with, it was trying to get its, it, it was competing with big uh, stores like Walmart, and the suppliers of diapers like Pampers were, were huge companies and, and tough at negotiating. So a couple of years later, they shut down the business, declared a big loss on the merger. And meanwhile, these guys who had started diapers.com 
went in and started another company that uh, was a market platform that they sold to Walmart. And that became the, the basis of Walmart's uh, retail platform. You know, and people still refer to that as, you know, how, how Amazon, uh, you know, uh, outcompeted or, or squelched a, a, a small farm uh, firm over di- the diaper market. They, they don't point out that it was a huge financial mistake for Amazon and that these guys, you know, took the half billion or whatever it was and started another company that is now a, a serious competitor to Amazon. Right. Well, another uh, way uh, anti-competitive behavior can lead to deleterious impacts. So we talked about prices and inflation. We talked about innovation. The other that you hear about uh, put forward is monopsonistic power uh, that these large companies basically gain control over the labor market and they can set wages. So they're not raising prices, but they're keeping wages very depressed. And this is one reason why We've seen the skewing of the income and wealth distribution that, you know, since we, the Borkian view of the world on antitrust took over, antitrust kind of was put to the side. It was only about prices and consumer welfare. We've seen this period of relatively weak wage growth, certainly among low income households, and the skewing of the income and wealth distribution. What do you think of that argument? Yeah. So I I wrote, a lot of papers on these topics for Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And one of them dealt with that. And it looked, at first it looked at the uh, decline in labor share overall. And, and when you would compensate for the significant rise in housing prices, that decline basically goes away. So, you know, when, when people talk about um, labor, workers not getting their fair share, a lot of that's the artificial constraints on building affordable housing. Um, as far as uh, the monopsy in the argument, uh, there, there have been a couple of papers that basically haven't seen that. Um, you know, there, there was the one case where the big tech firms basically agreed not to cold call each other's um, competitive workers. And, you know, that was a clear antitrust violation. They paid a big fine. It wouldn't have bothered me if you doubled that fine. It, How about tripled you know, it? Yeah. Ryan, Ryan but, saying triple yeah. it. Yeah, but, but you know, the, 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 the agencies, the enforcement agencies had the power they needed to deal with that case. You know, they, they didn't need an expansion of the law. They had all the powers they need. They exercised them. You can quibble about what, how strict they were, but, you know, if that happens again, they can go after, you know, they've got the power they need to go after whoever it is. Okay. And, and one more, and I'm sure there's others, mm-hmm. but one more, because I, we are getting a little long here. And I do want to talk about the great power competition a little bit before we call it quits. Is the increased market concentration is, is leading to greater control of, of information and personal data. You know, that they, yeah. they had this control and this is a problem, you know, uh, on lots of different levels that is very intuitive to people. Yeah. So one, a lot of these services are free. So the consumer is benefiting. Uh, 
true, a lot of the information they're giving isn't valuable. You know, it's like one of my papers, I cite the market prices for the identity of a, you know, of a newly pregnant woman. So, you know, if, if you know who it is, you can send her all sorts of flyers. It's like, I don't know, even it's under a dime. It might be under a penny to, you know, each distinct name. So most of the, you know, most of the data isn't that valuable. It, it, other people can get it through other means. Um, there is some data, data that's highly sensitive, highly valuable. We do need to have a conversation about how to protect that data. We knew, you know, maybe we need to tighten up the laws that deal with cases like um, Cambridge Analytica. Although the, the regulators, you know, had the power they needed, they got a big fine. So, but, but it wouldn't hurt, you know, it might not hurt to tighten that up, but that's not, again, an antitrust issue. That's a, that's a data privacy issue. Okay. Okay. So uh, to conclude the conversation on antitrust, and we could go on for yeah. another three hours, but you know, we don't want to do that. It's a nice day outside. <laughs> so there's really four uh, strains of thought here. One is I don't like big, anything big. I don't care what the impact is. I don't want big. Two is, okay, I, I don't like big if it's messing up with with resulting in higher prices for consumers or hurting consumer welfare. That's the porky. Yeah. But, or do away. The second one is basically do away with consumer welfare standard. Don't have that be the only, the guidepost. Yeah. That can't be the only yeah. guidepost. It's the yeah. Neo Brandeisian. I always say, yeah. that. I say it. Brandeisian <laughs> you know, kind of theory. Third, the, the, the kind of the third perspective uh, on this is, okay, you know, yes, it, uh, we, basically everything's okay. We just need to enforce the laws we have, the Sherman Antitrust Act, the Clayton Act. If we do that, then we're, we're golden, we're good. So no big deal. And then the fourth is that really we're hand-wringing about very little here. Yeah, we got our problems. Yeah, you know, income and wealth distribution is a problem. Yeah, low productivity growth is a problem, but don't blame it on market concentration and, and, and uh, big big companies uh, dominating their markets. That's not the issue here. And yeah. you're in that last camp. Okay. Ryan, where are you in that uh, kind of view? I'm probably in the, the fourth group. What Just because going Joe's group. No, one notch below Joe. The one that we're the mostly good. Group. Number three, number three, number four. No, no. <laughs> no, no. Number, number four is Joe. Joe saying, Oh yeah, no. So I'm number three. Yeah. Number three. So you're saying we need to re we just need to enforce our antitrust laws a little bit more carefully. I agree. Yeah, that's where I would be. You would be there. Okay. And Chris? Well, in classic Chris fashion, I'm at three point five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. That was my next statistic. Yeah. <laughs> so frustrating. Do not do that. Give us. Yeah, you got one, two, three, or four. Three. I'm more three than four. You're more three than four. You meaning you got to uh, uh, tighten up a little bit. Okay, tighten up a little bit. But okay, I you know Joe, I love you and I respect you, and you have really made me think carefully, more carefully about this. And I need to do more research. But I think I'm more uh, two than three. I, I really it makes me uncomfortable. I'm surprised. 
Really? Yeah, I would have put yeah, you in three with shocking. Chris and I. Yeah. Well, I think it's more than just consumer, you know, doing away with the consumer welfare criteria. I mean, I, I mean, I think I, I should say it's more than just consumer welfare as measured by price. I think you really, it, here, let me put it this way. I don't know what the answer is, but what I think the question should be is, are these large companies impacting our economy and our daily lives in a broader sense than simply prices in consumer welfare. It goes well beyond that. It goes beyond, it goes to innovation. It goes to productivity gains. It goes to, you know, monopsonistic power. It goes to controlling suppliers, you know, in forcing uh, uh, things on, on suppliers of these big companies. It, it goes to control of data. So I would say, I think our way of thinking about uh, antitrust should be broader than simply, you know, prices and kind of the straight line consumer wear, welfare definition that is a working view. Whether that ultimately ends up in antitrust action, different story. And uh, uh, but I do think it, it, it that's it, we need to uh, uh, think about this more broadly in terms of what it means for for the economy. Does that make sense? Joe disagrees. Yep, it's <laughs> he's being nice. He's being nice. He yeah, I, it's fine. Doesn't want yeah. to strain your your friends friendship too much. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I that's funny. I'm surprised you guys were you. Did Joe influence your thinking, or were you always uh, in that camp? No, it's probably in that camp. You're probably in that camp. Yeah, particularly more like yeah. more with finance than tech. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, very good. That we uh, that was a very good discussion. Very, I think, uh, kind of frame. I think this is very confusing for people, and kind of put a nice frame around thinking about it. So, thank you for that. So, before before we leave, Joe, I want to double back and talk a little sure. bit more about the Great Power Competition, which is uh, a in initiative that uh, Miter is leading the charge on. Can you just describe that a little bit uh, to the? Sure. I think they'll find sure. that very interesting. So, so in addition to doing projects for the federal government, MITRE spends a ton of tens, hundreds of millions of dollars a year on internal research that they think is going to matter in the next couple of years, that they think is going to help the government agencies in the future. And, and one of those is, is um, the increased importance of international competition. I think, I think you know, people are coming around to the belief that China and Russia are not going to go the way of Taiwan and South Korea, where they gradually become more liberal societies. They're going to stay, you know, oligopolistic. In fact, they're going to, they're, they're, they're ready to take us on because they think we're declining. Um, and that we cannot afford to have key technologies like AI and uh, quantum computing, that's what I was trying to think of earlier. We yeah. can't afford to have those controlled by hostile totalitarian governments. And so we need to, to be much more concerned about our own competitiveness and we need to have uh, tighter ties uh, with our allies. And so they're, they're spending a lot of effort studying that. And, and one, they have different groups. One is looking at the supply chain for MNRA Another is looking at the digital road, Silk Road, and the importance of that. Uh, another is looking at the, the, the um, China's uh, BW, 
be a, a build buildings and roads. That's oh, not uh, quite it. One belt, one road. One, one belt, one road. Yeah. Um, effort and and one is looking and that's the one I've been working on at at looking at the importance of the dollar, the benefits that the U.S. gets because of the dollar's sure. dominance, the reserve currency. Yeah. yeah, what's what lies behind that and. What are possible threats to it, and how should the government oh. respond? Can we have you back on for that one? Sure, sure. Reminder, In folks, fact, uh, I'd love yeah. to have you back on that because you you must be thinking about crypto and the effect of crypto as well. Crypto, um, uh, central bank currency, digital yeah. currencies. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to get you right back on. General. Yeah. Right okay. On. Trade markets. Yeah. In fact, they're, they're coming out with a paper relatively soon looking at. You know, summarizing what they've done over the last two years and providing some recommendations to the government agencies about what they need to track and what they need to think about as far so as possible line, policies. Bottom line, in our lifetime, Joe, will the U.S. lose the reserve status? Well, uh, if, if we do, if we perform moderately well as a, as a society, I think no. Moderately well, meaning what yeah. we have done since World War II? Yeah, and, and the biggest thing, we don't let inflation get out of control. Okay. I mean, it's hard to have a dominant currency when everybody thinks its price is going to fall. Yeah. And then, you know, but as, as long as we have a strong currency, no, I don't think. Uh, in fact, I think you look around the world and more people want dollars because of the uncertainty. Yeah. You know, that, that'll decline as the economy gets back the world economy gets back to shape. But um, I think that the, the advantages are just too strong. And, and the, the Chinese, the, the, you know, the government's uh, re- refusal to open up the capital markets, it's continued interven- intervention in financial markets, it's restriction on moving uh, money overseas, yeah. Nobody wants. <laughs> you can't. That nobody work. wants to hold a lot of their assets in yen because yeah. in in one because the government can take it away well, tomorrow. Joe, you should know that Chris is a you know big crypto guy, and he thinks Ethereum is going to displace the dollar. You know, at some point here in the near future. Yeah. Now, now right the new this. thing is the Arabian uh, Falcons, right? Oh, the Arabian oh, one now. Arabian Falcon coin, according to your uh, Twitter feed, Mark. Yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm on Twitter, guys. I mean, I've always been on Twitter. I've always been. I've been on Twitter for a long time, but I've never. I was kind of dormant, yeah. but now I'm in gear. Have you Have you noticed in the last week or so? I'm really on Twitter uh, at Mark Zandy at Mark. So I'm advertising okay. at Mark Zandy. So Joe, have you have you uh, what do you uh, have you uh, befriended me? Have you are you following me? Yet? No, I, 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 alas, no. I'm not. No. I, I will be well, I'll follow you <laughs> and then we'll think about befriending you. Yes, okay, later. thank you. Thank Let's you. See how this goes, okay? I appreciate that. And uh, I want, I do want to thank you, Joe, for joining us and really appreciate all your insight. And we're definitely want you back. Uh, I want to talk about reserve. Okay. I'm so glad this Moody's thing is working out for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. 16 years later. Yeah. yeah. It's still it's okay. a trial. You know, still a trial. <laughs> yeah. Trial basis, you know, kind of thing going yeah. on. Um, I also okay. want uh, to let everyone know that, uh, uh, please, uh, we want your reviews. We have 99 reviews. Someone put us over the top here. We need to <laughs> 
100, at least 100 reviews. And my mom will put you over the oh, top. Oh, Joe, you can do that too. No, only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> my mom will. Yeah, you your mom will. Your mom will. Your mom will. So, uh, and I, oh, there was one other thing I want to mention. We are now doing, uh, we obviously do this podcast every week. We're also now putting up uh, special editions uh, of, uh, of podcasts. These are like we did a webinar, <clears throat> Moody's Analytics webinar, and we put it up as a podcast. The, the audio was pretty bad, so we're, we're going to fix that and make that good. But you'll see kind of evergreen podcasts that we're going to do and put them up there for folks. So uh, watch out for those as well. And please, okay. far away with any, with any suggestions that you may have. Uh, any parting words, guys? Joe? Uh, ne- next time, I'd like to plug my widely unread book. Well, so. Do it now. What's your, okay, yeah. well, I just happened to have it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wait a second. Ending There's poverty. Oh mix. yes, I remember. Very excellent book. Yeah, I think I gave you a copy. You did indeed. It's an, did it's, you read it? I did indeed. Now you did looked you? at that. Came out when though? That, that was a while. Eight, that was yeah. Twenty oh eight, I think. Yeah, twenty oh eight. So it was a while ago. Yeah, I got four, six bookshelves of them. So anybody well, wants, you know, join the wants club, a copy. Join, join the club. Yeah. Mark, yeah. Mark's office has boxes. I got boxes. <laughs> I got boxes. I, 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 my great claim to flame though is one of my books got put into Mandarin. So I hit the big time. So, oh. yeah, there you go. Anyway, we should call this a quit. Uh, quit. Okay. So, thank you, Joe. Thank you guys. It's been uh, a pleasure. Listener thank you. Thank you. next week. We'll, we'll hear you. We'll talk to you then. Take care now. <laughs> <laughs>